Back here with a long-awaited podcast with John Binkley. How you doing, John? I'm doing terrific, thanks. You're, you're the third or fourth podcast in the new studio we have here. So what are it's you? It's a beautiful studio. I'm very impressed with it, Jeff. Really, we're, we're trying Outstanding. to. It's a work in progress, but we're trying to really. Next year, very busy with the elections and all. Oh, the things it's going to be a busy year politically next year. With the, the assembly, Anchorage assembly races, five of those, and then 59, as you know. Yeah, right? I do know. 59 <laughs> should be up for election, and we'll talk about the redistricting uh, okay. later. But first, I want to talk to you, and we've talked about this in Juneau a couple times. You were in the Senate, but you, you were a Republican from Bethel. That's correct, yeah. Which, which you know, for folks who follow politics, everybody kind of, you know, understands that, that rural people are almost always Democrats. Yeah, it's highly Democrat, the, the district that I had, both in the House and the Senate. So, so first, let's talk about how you ended up in uh, Bethel. Well, uh, my background is our family's been in the riverboat business since the gold rush. So like, I'm third generation riverboat pilot. And I got to say, I've done a podcast with Ryan and Kai, your kids, two of them. So Both riverboat pilots as well. And we've talked about the, the history of the business, but this yeah. goes back um, a couple generations, right? Yeah, well, I'm third generation Alaska wow. riverboat pilot. So Kai and Ryan and their two siblings, uh, Wade and James, are fourth generation riverboat pilots. And our grandkids are coming along learning the trade as well. So hopefully we'll have five generations of Alaska riverboat pilots. But anyhow, that's the business I grew up in. Always heard tales from my father uh, about the days of barging on the Yukon River. And I was kind of enamored with that, uh, the romance of it. And so in 1977, I had an opportunity to start a tug and barge business on the lower Yukon River. So Judy and I were married in 77, and we started our tug and barge business out of St. Mary's on the lower Yukon River. Operated tugs and barges. She cooked. I ran the boat, and we... Um, or were you just uh, hauling? We were goods? hauling gravel, gravel, gravel. Yeah, the the lower Yukon and Kuskokwim River is all a big delta, so it's all silt that's that's come downstream in those two river systems over eons and created this massive delta. So there's very little aggregate that's there. So mm-hmm. for construction of runways or roads or foundations or whatever. There's no gravel. It's all got to be barged downriver. So you, would, you would pull up the boat and there'd be a, a, a equipment and they'd load the gravel on? Exactly. Yeah, we'd load gravel on the barges, take it down, and we were, the state was building, improving the runways in that area. So we had a subcontract on the Yukon and we would haul gravel down for the construction of these runways. We did that two years on the Yukon and then we moved over to Bethel on the Kuskokwim River mm-hmm. to pursue the same business. I were other a, people doing that at the time or were you kind of one of the first ones doing that? Well, there weren't really anybody, there wasn't really anybody doing it on the Yukon. That really is what allowed me to get started in the business. And then when we moved over to the, to the uh, Kuskokwim, there was an existing business there that we bought a portion of it and a company called Kinnick Construction uh, owned by Linden Transport. That's still around, isn't it? It's still around, yeah. They're very very prolific out in rural Alaska particularly. And so they did the the gravel and the civil side of the construction. We did the barging. So did this, I mean, the pipeline was at that point kind of built, but was there more money as as a result of the pipeline? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. The revenue started to flow in the state. The state said, hey, we've got money to spend. Let's start to build some infrastructure out in rural Alaska. These airports need to be improved so people have reliable access in and out uh, by air. And so the state wanted to improve these runways. They let contracts to improve the runways by hauling gravel down and surfacing the runways so they were more usable year-round. 
So when did you decide, at some point, I guess you were, you were in the city council, right, first? Yeah, in Bethel. <clears throat> so we moved to Bethel. You know, we had a family, growing family there. We got integrated into the community, became a part of the community, and uh, for multiple reasons felt, you know, I need to get involved and uh, help shape what's going on in were, Bethel. So I ran for the city council. Were you, there when, were you there when Joe McGinnis came there? For that, don't, don't there's a book, Joe Going Mines. to Extremes. But he's the guy who moved next door to Sarah Palin. No. So he wrote this book called Going, he came to Alaska in the 70s, in 77, I think, on the, okay. came up on, on the um, Malaspina, and he was in Alaska for a couple of years, and you should read the book. I mean, it's a fascinating book. It's all about, you know, he's Jews in Southeast, Anchorage, he goes to Fairbanks, he goes, to, there's a whole chapter about Bethel. Really? And, I, I don't, I and don't I'm recognize sure, the name of the book. So. I'm sure you know some of the people that um, he talks about. I mean, there were some people that moved up, and they became, kind of one got in the radio business, and he kind of wrote in the book that Bethel's the kind of place where these people could, they were kind of hippies, and they could come up, and then a year later... They're doing the, like amazing jobs that you would never be able to do in California, for example. Oh, so many opportunities. So you should read the, you should, you like should. the book. It's, it's a good history of, it talks about Juno and the legislature back in the day and all the craziness. It's a good, you'd like the book. Okay. I'll look for it. Paul Bethel chapter. So, yeah. So you're so anyhow, on the city council and then uh, uh, had a group. I got involved in the Alaska Municipal League. I was on the board of directors of that entity. Oh, AML. So, so AML. That's yeah. The, that's so I had big, an big opportunity to go down to Juno lobby on behalf of the municipalities and kind of be introduced to what was going on in the legislature. My dad was in the legislature in the early 60s. Uh, so I had some sense. We talked a lot of politics around the kitchen table growing up. So I understood it. How long was he in for? Uh, 60 to 64, two terms in the House. So well, right at the beginning of statehood. I didn't even know. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know that. So yeah. you, have, you have a history of... Yeah, civic involvement. My, my folks were always very engaged Political, uh, you know, my mom was engaged in Republican politics uh, from an early age. We always grew up with that uh, in the background. So, so seeing the first the, legislature, well, there was one in '59, and then he came in in '60. He was elected in '60, so there was one before that. But they were still; it was the foundation, really, of uh, building the state and the statutes, and it was just all brand new. Imagine that time, yeah. huh? So much different too. It was very different. Uh, Alaska was very much a Democrat state in, in those days. Yeah, I was just talking. I was in, interviewed last night by some strangely British radio show, got a hold of me, and he was asking about Alaska, and I talked about how Alaska was Demo highly Democrat and Hawaii was Republican. Exactly. They that's, flipped. That's how we got we, we into had statehood. Ba Bartlett, Mike Gravel, you know. Well, it was Greening at that time. Greening. These are very progressive, you know, folks. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I think and I, Ralph Rivers was the uh, mm -hmm. U.S. congressman. I think a lot of it had to do with the Folks moving up here from Lower 48 when the oil pipeline got going. and I, I think it changed the demographics of Alaska, most definitely. So you're in Juneau, and you're kind of getting familiar, and then you're, you're thinking, maybe, I, maybe I'll run. Well, there were people that approached me and, and asked me to run against the incumbent Democrat uh, from Juneau. In the, in, and, the, in the House. In the House, yeah, exactly. And so uh, I was intrigued by the idea, thought about it, and... Uh, and decided, okay, I will run for the House. And you were a Republican and then? I'm a re Republican. So these people, uh, very influential people, legislators too, from rural Alaska, uh, convinced me to run for the House. And then at one point I said, well, I'm going to run. And, of course, I'm a Republican. I'm going to run as a Republican. And they said, no way. You can't run as a Republican. I mean, so it was the you're same not going to be successful. It was the same back then, that perception of it's... Exactly. It's, okay. Yeah. You, you have to be a Democrat to win there. And uh, 
And I said, well, those are my values. I've always been a Republican, and I'm going to run as a Republican. They said, well, fine, you can have your values, believe you're a Republican, <laughs> but you got to file as a Democrat if you're going to be successful in, in winning out there. And, and finally, I said, you know, it would break my mother's heart if I ever filed as a Democrat. <laughs> they had no rejoinder to that. So uh, I, I ran as a Republican, and it was a, it was a tough race, very difficult. I was... In those days, we had a closed primary. So I had a Republican opponent in the primary mm-hmm. uh, that I don't think was Republican very long, but I think the the theory was that maybe they could knock me off in the primary and the incumbent on the Democrat side wouldn't really have a race in the general election. This is on, on a bigger level. This is what happened with uh, Gravel and um, that race with Murkowski. They, 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 the, um, who was it? Uh, oh, my gosh. I'm trying to think of the name of the opponent that beat him Clark Greening Clark Greening yeah and then the idea was you know because Clark be, Clark's easier to beat than exactly. Murkowski or, or, or than, than, than Gravel, or Gravel. Gravel. Yeah. so yeah. same kind of you know antics were which is politics you know that's how it works yeah. and yeah. so Greening wins and then Murkowski won in 80 yeah. so similar type I think maybe strategy going on yeah exactly, exactly. so you beat so, this you beat this guy in the primary barely and then the next day the my opponent in the primary came out and endorsed the Democrat uh, for the general election. So you so, knew this all, the whole time? This was kind of um, some shenanigans? or Well, antics. I just was figuring it out as I went along. Uh, you know, I was a little naive probably in, in terms of what was going on. But So, so then it was you and, and the against, Democrat? Against a Democrat opponent in the general election who had the endorsement of my primary opponent. <laughs> and, and I was, uh, I, I mean, I got smoked. He had uh, maybe, what was it, 65% of the vote in the primary, I had maybe, uh, was it 20% or no, maybe he had 75%. I had 15% and my, he was by himself in the democratic primary. Yeah. yeah. And my Republican opponent had 10%, something like that. Okay. So I was looking at, you know, my little 15% compared to probably 85% if you counted the Democrat opponent and my Republican. Who was it? Were they like a long-term legislator? Yeah. Yeah. Tony Vasca, uh, real good guy, very smart, uh, educated at Stanford and uh, lifelong uh, person from uh, uh, the the region, from Kalskeg, and uh, very well-spoken, very articulate, and highly thought of in the district. So it it was quite a undertaking to actually be successful in beating him. So you had to go, I assume, in the bush plane and go to these communities yeah. and talk to everybody? We, I did. It was, uh, it was spread out. I think I had 30, maybe 30 villages in my house district. And it, in those days, there was, uh, you know, there wasn't the communication system that we have now. In the villages, there was one phone, typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no radio or television. Uh, so... You know, there was no real way to communicate. The newspaper was about the only way to communicate. Uh, the newspaper was owned by a person who was highly partisan, although she had supported me in the, my city council races when I came out and filed as a Republican and ran against a Democrat incumbent. Uh, she was four, four square against me. So you, you had a lot it, of, the odds were against you. Uh, very much so, yeah. And I think that was really, as it turns out, a benefit because my opponent, was very secure. Uh, he didn't campaign much. He didn't feel he needed to. And and in those areas where you don't have a lot of mass media, you don't see what the opponent is doing. I was out in the villages going door to door, 
in every home, in every village, and multiple times, many cases. Uh, sitting down with people, uh, and people in rural Alaska are so inviting. They're so warm, so genuine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're appreciative that you come out, that you knock on their door. They want to invite you in for a, a cup of tea and and to be able to talk. And it was really a very, uh, I learned so much about the district and so much about the people. And I believe that they really saw that I was genuine, sincere, that I, I wanted to help. I was interested in what their issues were and and how we could make things better. Did some of them know you from the, the boat business? They did, exactly. Yeah, so many of the people knew me from the tug and barge business. That was another big advantage. And in, by that time, we had progressed beyond just gravel. So we were doing freight, bulk petroleum, uh, supplies. So, uh, and I was off the boat, and I was flying out to these communities as well. So I'd be there when we were unloading freight in the villages, doing sales work as well, sales calls. So I knew a lot of the people from the commercial side in my barge business. So what year was this? This was in uh, 1984. Well, that's when I was born. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> a great year. <laughs> good year, you know. <laughs> I was December, year. so I'm coming up here in about, my birthday's in a few weeks. Yeah, congratulations. Good for you. So you, you, you won the general? I barely squeaked it out. What was, do you remember the percentages or the, uh, the totals? I think it was, it was real close. It was a funny story because in those days, uh, a Nome was the election central for those villages in that region. So the villages would count the totals and then they would call in on the one village phone into Nome and give them the results. And one of the villages, Tanunik, uh, the phone was out, which happened quite often. And so we were waiting on election night. There was one village without the results in. And I think I had a lead of maybe 25 votes at the end of the night without the village of Tanunik. Oh, boy. And uh, did, you, did you have a feeling how Tanunik was going to oh, go I for you? How, I knew how Tanunik was going to go. <laughs> I knew almost everybody in Tanunik. Uh, but my opponent felt very confident about Tanunik also. And so finally, somebody from Tuxuk Bay was able to get over to Tanunik by snow machine, pick up what the vote tallies were, and get back over to Tuxuk Bay, and then call into Nome to relay the results, which were the next was the next day. And so I think we were both very confident. And then it, I gained, I think maybe fifty votes. You I must think have had a, seventy-four a rough, votes or something. Not a lot of sleep that night, I bet. I felt pretty good about it. Yeah, I, I knew I knew the people in Tanunik. So, so what? I mean, what, but anyhow, how would you kind of equate? Like modern day, I mean, what kind of, was that like an upset? I mean, obviously it sounds oh, like an huge, upset. Like, huge what, upset. Is that like some, yeah, is that like a Democrat winning in, you know, I don't know, like the Valley or something? Is that Eagle kind of, River? Yeah. So, is that equivalent maybe kind of? I think, yeah, it would be similar to that. It would be completely unexpected. Or even a Republican winning in, in one of these rural districts, you know, t- today would be probably a shocker. Yeah. That, I, I would say probably more of a shock maybe in, in Wasella. Mm-hmm. So what, so you were like, wow, here, I'm going to Juneau. Right. Right, I'm going to Juno. <laughs> what What was the reaction of uh, when you got there? What did people say? How How'd you do that? Was were people asking you about it? Or? I think so. I think people, you know, you don't dwell on that much. You've got business ahead of you. You get to work. You got to organize first. I got a seat on house finance as a freshman, which was great. So, and also where I sat on the floor was really important. I sat right next to Al Adams. Oh, legend. Legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible individual, so versed and so smart uh, about the process, legislative process. And he just schooled me. He was chairman, sole chairman of House Finance. So he, uh, he gave me so much. I learned so much from him. On the floor every day, he would explain what was going on. 
you know, I would sometimes want to jump up and get engaged in a in a battle, so to speak, and he would yank me back down and say, <laughs> no, no, now is not the right time to engage. So I just learned a tremendous amount from him. So you were there at an interesting time because you started in 85, right? Uh, January of 85, yeah. And, and that's when the, the, the recession was almost kind of starting the big one. And then was Sheffield, was that the impeachment exactly. going on then? Sheffield was the governor. And, of course, revenues fell dramatically. They just bottomed out. Oil went to below $10 a barrel. Yeah. And we went from this huge prosperity to very, very difficult times. And we had to make difficult decisions in terms of reducing the budget. Uh, governor Sheffield, to his credit, he took on a lot of that as the executive. He said, hey, we're cutting the budget. And, uh, you know, it was during special session, as I recall, or not special session, but after, after session in 85, he came in and unilaterally just said, we're not going to be spending this money, and we're going to make these reductions. And he, of course, was punished for that politically at the, at the polls when he ran for re-election in the primary. He got eliminated in the primary. Democrat do you think the impeachment had to do with that too? Or I mean that was some, that was some. that was around that time, wasn't it? It it was, but it was I think it was more to do with the fiscal situation that that he made such dramatic cuts as a Democrat governor that I think some of his base was upset about that. Did, did you know Steve Cooper well? Oh yeah. I knew Steve Cooper from Fairbanks. He was a legislator from Fairbanks. He's, he's, I always talk to folks. He's kind of an anomaly. I mean, nobody really knows. Yeah. I mean, people know Sheffield. People know Hammond. People know Murkowski. People know Knowles. But this Cooper guy, like one term. High Plains Drifter. He's that just really not. He's still, I think he's still in Texas. I'm trying to, yeah. I was trying to get a podcast with him. Yeah, um, I think he is. I, I, he comes up to Fairbanks usually every summer, and, and occasionally I see him when he comes through. I'd love to talk. To, so he got elected, my understanding is, is the day after he got elected, he said something like, all bets are off. Yeah, yeah. It was right now. Yeah, it was maybe late December. <clears throat> so everybody said, "What the hell? Like, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? What are you doing, man?" Because <laughs> it was a really hard time, right? With the, it was the, very difficult. The the revenues had dropped precipitously, and uh, and so that's exactly what he said. That's the famous quote: "All bets are off." That's a great quote for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you get elected? When did you go into the Senate? Was at that same year that Cooper was elected. So, so, so you I were just a one, one term one, in the House. One term in the House, and then ran for the Senate, and then actually came in as a freshman as co-chairman of Senate Finance, so, which so, was great. So I focused on finance, uh, you know, my in, entire time uh, in the legislature. I was always on finance. So why, what made you go for the Senate? I mean, was... Would, was there an open, open seat? seat? Yeah. So yeah. when did Lyman Hoffman get? He was 86. Well, Lyme, yeah, Lyman Hoffman, of course, I knew Lyman Hoffman was the city manager when I was on the city council. So knew Lyman very well wow. and all of his family out in Bethel. And then when I ran for the Senate, he ran for my house seat. And I supported him in running for my house seat. So that was and his then, first ter- term in the legislature. His first term in the legislature in the house. When I left the house seat and went to the Senate. And then when I left the Senate, he ran for my Senate seat. And the same thing, I helped him, uh, you know, fly around and, so, and so introduce him to another part of the district that he wasn't familiar with. Who was the senator? He just didn't want to run again? or Yeah, he wanted to retire. He was just ready to retire. So. so at that point, you have another bigger challenge because now you have to be a Republican in a rural district that's twice as big as your house district. 74 communities, all rural communities. Did you know a lot of them different, the same, same way you knew the other folks in the tug and barge? I did a little bit differently because my dad had had a tug and barge business on the upper Yukon River. And so he knew a lot of the people there uh, from, you know, the 40s and 50s and had a lot of connections on the Yukon River. 
And so on the upper Yukon, I was on the lower Yukon when I ran my tug and barge business. And so the name was very familiar to a lot of the elders and a lot of the people in the villages. So that was a tremendous help in that regard when I took over that Doyon, part of the Doyon mm-hmm. region at that point, the so, upper Yukon. So there was, villages. I assume, easy Republican primary, but who, who was a Democrat? Tony Vasca. He came back. Oh, he came and, back. Yeah, he came back and ran against me for the Senate seat. Then. Whoa. And so it was so a two rematch. Years, two, rematch two years later. Yeah, yeah. 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 What happened in that, in that race? Yeah, I beat him a little handily. I mean, um, a little by, by a bigger margin, but... Wow, that's so you're so 86. So, how long were you sent? Just one term. So, then uh, at that point, you know, that was 1990 when I would have had to run again. Mm-hmm. And the kids were, we had four kids, young kids. And the oldest, Ryan, would have been, I think he was in sixth grade maybe at that point. So, he would have been, if I ran for another term, in high school. And Kai would have been in high school probably. Too, was, he, was Ryan involved in the high school newspaper? <laughs> well, well, we decided, and, and the, the point was, all of our family, my wife Judy was born in Fairbanks as well, so all of her family's in Fairbanks. All of my family's in Fairbanks were in Bethel, and we really wanted the kids to have an opportunity to grow up around grandparents, mm-hmm. around aunts and uncles, cousins, that sort of thing. And moving back and forth was tough, and once the kids get in high school, that gets even tougher. Yeah. So I didn't want to do it. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, I had a lot of influence as co-chair of Senate Finance in, in what policy was, how things were done. And I, I really enjoyed it. But Judy and I made the decision that we would step back from politics and that we would move back to Fairbanks so that the kids had an opportunity really to spend important time with their, particularly their grandparents. And so I think that was important to them, and, and it was a good move for us. And that's when Lyman Hoffman ran for the seat. And then Lyman ran for my Senate seat. Correct. So you were there when Exxon Valdez happened, and you were co-chair of finance. Yes. So someone told me a story once, and I don't, I don't know if, I think it was Senate finance. I heard that somebody came in during a meeting and said something like, uh, something happened. Something big happened. If you, if you, you remember that? Uh, I don't recall the details of that, to be honest with you, Jeff. What, how, you know, you, where I was, you know, like a nine eleven or whatever it was. I don't remember where I was. But you remember? You, I mean, obviously, when you heard about it, it was like, oh yeah, the that, big, it was massive. Yeah, a lot of money got spent on from Exxon, right? Tons of billions. Money. I think maybe a, a couple of billion dollars, maybe. Yeah, it was. And a, so it was a huge, and we were just. You know, we were trying to come out of a recession, a very deep recession. So it was, for the economy, of course, disaster for the environment. But for the economy, it really injected a tremendous amount of cash into the economy of, of South Central and the rail belt and really helped to pull Anchorage and, and uh, South Central Alaska back out of the recession, deep recession mm-hmm. we were in. So 90 was the other kind of weird thing where Hickel came back. Yes. With that Independence Party, like a six-week six-week run. Yeah. So, so it was him, and who was he? Coghill. Coghill, right? Yeah. And then it was he was he was on the ballot with Sturgeluski, and so he was the Republican lieutenant governor nominee with Arliss Sturgeluski, and then he left the ticket to join Wally Hickel on the Independent side, left Arliss uh, there alone. <laughs> yeah, and then Campbell came in and agreed to run as her running mate. Jim Campbell. What about the Democrat who was? Uh, I don't even remember. Should know that. But it was uh, a three-way. It was a three, three-way race. Yeah. And then Hickel came. And then he it was, was short. He just had was like six weeks. Was all a campaign. This independent, this Joe Vogler thing, right? 
Well, he party. took over the Independence Party. So they took the slot that the Independence Party, which was headed by Joe Vogler. Did you know him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's, so what's yeah. the deal with that? He just he's, he got disappeared or nobody knows what I mean, happened? Yeah. Because he yeah. was supposed to go testify in D.C. about something, right? Some some about I, Iran or some... I can't remember. The United that. Nations. There was some thing he was supposed to talk about, about some corruption or perceived corruption with you know Alaska independence and something with Iran. And he was supposed to go to the United Nations, I think, and testify. Yeah, I think, but wasn't it in the end, it was just uh, some guy trying to steal some gold from him? I think, I mean, there's all these, I don't know, there's all these theories about it, but I mean, he was definitely a character, right? Oh my goodness, yeah. Fairbanks guy, right? Smart guy, really smart guy. Great guy. I I thought the world of Joe. You knew him pretty well, or? Well, I knew him through my dad. You know, my dad was involved in politics, so I got to know a lot of the early characters, Butrovich and so many of them that, that I just got a chance to know through my father and when I was growing up. So was the the Hickle thing kind of like in 2014, the Walker thing, where people were like, whoa, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. Yeah, it just came out of nowhere, and it was fast. Like I said, six weeks. He didn't run in the primary. It was after the primary. That's kind of like Walker. I mean, he was running, but then he he, with a lot, they kind of combined. That's true. like September, I think, before before the election. So Similar model, I guess. So you're back in Fairbanks at that point? when? Uh, Yes, I'm back in Fairbanks. So we moved back. And yeah, so I was really, uh, I was on the fringes of it. I wasn't engaged that much in, in the gubernatorial race at that point. So then at some point too, you got really involved um, in the railroad. I mean, that's been your, you were chairman for a long time on the board and. Yeah, I, I, uh, it was actually, I, after the, let's see, was it the 94 election? I'd supported Campbell in that election and Tony Knowles um, was successful and became governor. And then in 95, in March of 95, Tony Knowles approached me and asked me if I would be willing to serve on the Alaska Railroad Board. And uh, even though I, I hadn't supported him, obviously, in the election, but yeah, I said, great. I'll smart smart guy. Yeah, <laughs> he was. And it was very interesting. Um, you know, he told me specifically why he was appointing me and what his vision was for the Alaska Railroad. And in this this case, he had really wanted to see the Alaska Railroad focus on passenger services that they that had been lacking, that that was kind of the stepchild of the Alaska Railroad, and he wanted to see that elevated. He thought that had a lot of promise. And, and that's why he said he'd chosen me, because of my background in tourism and, you know, public policy and, and whatever, so... Well, then, you know, I focused on that too. And, and, and I've been working on this. I think, you know, I've been working on a story on the railroad for a while and I'm trying to get it out there at some point. But the one area we looked at in the history, the passenger service has really grown. It has. Because for a long time, it was almost all freight. I mean, that was huge. Exactly. 90%. And then back in the day, there was a little bit, the cruise ships and things. and that. But then over time, it, you can see on the you know the charts and things over, over all the reports and the annual revenues, the, the passenger service has really gone way up since, yeah, it since, has. since the 90s, actually. Yeah, it's it's been a big focus of ours uh, since mid '90s, and um, we've invested in in equipment, good passenger equipment, and in service and in schedule to really be able to meet demand. And it's really an example, I think, of a success story for the railroad and why the railroad is successful. You know, it's a very unique entity, and it's one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it's a public entity, so. Any of the of the benefits of the railroad go to all the people of Alaska, but it's not done like other state agencies. It's an independent entity, 
So all the revenues from the railroad go back to the revenue, go back to the railroad. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's not a part of what's called the Executive Budget Act. Any other entity like the Alaska Marine Highway System, all of those revenues go back to the... Yeah, like ADA, um, AHFC, I think they, they, they have like a dividend. Yeah, AHFC so. is a little bit different, but uh, it's, it's different in... And what that does for the railroad, what makes it different, in my opinion, is that any entity is going to focus on where its revenue source is. And for m- almost all state agencies, their focus is political. Because that's where the revenue comes from. It comes from the Senate Finance Committee and the governor. So their policy ultimately is going to be political. And the railroad is different because our revenue comes from our customers. And so we focus on our customers. And how do we give good customer service at, at rates that are affordable to the customers? And how do we build the business on that side of it? So to me, it's this combination of a public entity where the benefits go to all the people of Alaska, but you run it like a business, not like a state agency. And that's why it's, uh, that's why I love it so much and why I enjoy it. You're still on the board. Yeah. 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 Um, So I want to talk about the redistricting board and and how that happened. So, so Senator Giesel appointed you, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess two years, two years ago. So how'd that, did you, did you? August, no, um, August of 2020. I guess it was, yeah, over a year ago. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. so how'd that go? Did she call you, I guess, and say, hey, yeah, we chatted, a- uh, we chatted and she interviewed me more or less. And, um, I've known uh, Kathy for a long, long time since we were kids, actually. She grew up oh, Fairbanks, right. to us in yeah. Fairbanks. Yeah. <clears throat> neighbor, right in the same neighborhood and knew her folks real well. And our folks were good friends. And so I've known her for a lifetime really. And, um, I expressed an interest in it and, and, did an interview and then she chose me, which I was very thankful for. I, I've really enjoyed the process. So the, the it was interesting because at first uh, there was like the planning committee that started off and then yes. and then it switched over to the board. And I followed it, uh, you know, fairly closely, um, it, not super close. But to me, it seemed like uh, over the like the last year, things were relatively, you know, kind of just normal. It was it was meetings. It was the the maps for the house. There was the tour around and. And it only got really controversial at the end of when the Senate stuff came along. Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, I would say so, yeah. And even on the Senate side, it was really just... Just Anchorage. Well, it was just two Senate seats, really, that it created the controversy. I think everything else was pretty pretty smooth, and everybody was very, very agreeable. There were some differences on the House sides for the Anchorage House seats, the 16 Anchorage House seats, you know, for adoption of... That portion of the plan was three to two also. The House was interesting because I think a lot of folks, observers, saw you and uh, Bud Simpson and Bethany as kind of being maybe more aligned and then Melanie Banky and Nicole Borromeo being more, you know, more aligned. But then Bud Simpson voted, um, I guess, with Melanie Banky's plan for the House districts. Yeah, really it was Nicole Borromeo's uh, House plan. She put together the House plan for Anchorage. And that was when Bud supported, and I supported Bethany's plan. Uh, so it was three to two on that. But that's understandable. You know, reasonable people have differences mm-hmm. of opinion. And, and there's so many different ways you can uh, you can draw the, the lines to make the districts that any number of combinations. And uh, It's interesting when you start toying with some line somewhere, it can often have a domino effect. Exactly. And it because can move the other one, and that moves, that moves the other one, and... 
And it's really, I say lines, but it's not lines. They're actually uh, blocks, census blocks. So the U.S. Census Bureau creates these blocks, and they're all different shapes. And there's over 28,500 of them in Alaska. And we have to assemble those blocks mm-hmm. to create the district. So you d- you don't really draw a smooth line around an area. You take the census blocks that, that were given by the U.S. Census Department, and we assemble those into the different districts. So there was a bit of a delay on the data, right, because of COVID? Yes. Traditionally, the U.S. Census data comes out in March, near the end of March. And in this year, it was de- because of COVID, it was delayed until August, early part of August. So that was significant. And oh, it's, it's still going to impact things because, you know, there's a hard deadline of June 1 for the filing deadline for the elections yeah. in 2022. And that's not changing. And so it backs everything up. Legislators need to know where their districts are well, to file and run. Well, this happened. And, I ran in 2012 for the Senate, my first time running. And this was the same thing. There was a huge amount of uncertainty right. going on. And I remember I used to be in Kevin Meyer's Senate district. I got moved into Liesl McGuire's Senate district. And that's where I was running. And there was a bunch of uncertainty. And it was May. And yeah. if, if you remember, they did the, uh, the, the um, interim, uh, interim plan, plan. Yeah. for 2012. Yeah. And they ended up changing it again in 2013. Correct. But it was really kind of frustrating because you're like, where do I campaign? I mean, what, is it going to change? Do I have to go to a different district? Am I going to even be in the, running yeah. against this person? Yeah. But, but in tw- 2002, I went back and checked. And it was a pretty similar timeline. They, they adopted it all at the end of the year. There was some litigation challenges on some of the districts, and that got resolved by April. It was all wrapped up by April of 2002. So, you know, maybe maybe there's probably going to be litigated. The deadline's pretty soon, right, next week? Um, I believe so. I I can't remember exactly what it is, but there's 30 days after we have our final plan that uh, any litigation has to be filed. And we anticipate there will be litigation, as there always has been and always probably will be. So, I, so the big controversy, I would say, or the, the at least for a lot of the people watching in the politicos, is this Eagle River pairing thing, with uh, one with Jay Bear and then one with I guess South Muldoon. But I went back and and checked, and I guess it does you know make sense. Eagle River's a community, but in two thousand two, part of Eagle River was paired with um, part of Jay Bear in Mountain View, and that was I, held up. I mean, that was I went back and checked, and I was kind of curious. So, it's not you know never. It's not like it never happened before. Yeah, and you really have to look to the law. And, you know, the law basically says on the Senate pairings, they just have to be adjacent to each other. They just have to touch. Mm-hmm. So the House districts is a little tougher in terms of what the Constitution says about how we put together the House districts. And I don't think there's any controversy really in that, other than there may be. I know Valdez, some of the communities are concerned, Valdez and the Matsu, uh, about how some of those districts were put together on the House side. But really, the, the, most of the controversy was then, once we had all those House districts put together, then the pairings just in those two that you mentioned. But it really, and I think what people forget, uh, or maybe are unaware of, is that in terms of the law, Anchorage is one socioeconomic area. It's all the same. The law doesn't look at Muldoon or Ocean View or Eagle River or the hillside it's just all Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And even though we look at those as neighborhoods, it's not really the way the law is structured. So, so the one thing just that, all Anchorage. The one thing that came up, and I want to get your thoughts on this, and I, I think it's a fair uh, point, the House stuff was, was, was highly debated. There was a tour all over, the, all over the state. You guys all went around and got feedback. The Senate pairings, and maybe this is how, always how it's gone, 
there was really not a lot of um, time for public input on the Senate pairings. Is that just how it's been, or you know? It's, I think it's just the process. It's it's difficult because we took around six different plans, and so the the board itself we had two different plans that we took around, and then the there were four third party plans that we took around. Many of those had Senate pairings, so people could comment and did on the Senate pairings. But until you really have the House districts laid out, there's really it's hard to know what the Senate pairings are going to be. Was, so just by virtue of the process, it's difficult to... Was, was there any discussion about putting the Senate pairings together with the, the draft plans, or was that not talked about? I don't think we even contemplated that. I think we just looked at, the from the board's perspective, the two plans that we put out. What is the input going to be on the... the uh, the House districts. That was really our focus. We really didn't focus on the Senate plans because, and even the draft plans that we had changed dramatically. So what would have mm-hmm. been the point? Because you don't know what the House districts are going to be, so it's difficult to even speculate on how Senate pairings might be when you don't even know in the end yeah. what the House plans are going to be. So, so, And it really, and I think that's probably in the Constitution why it's so broad, is you just have to have... Two House districts that touch, and that creates a Senate district. So, so like you said, there's almost certainly going to be litigation. What what, what might happen? I mean, the, they they could say the, the courts could say no, throw it out, or they could they could go to the board and say do redo this, or that could the could the courts re, the courts don't read the courts don't redraw, do they? They go back and say this doesn't work, kind of fix it. I think that can happen, but I don't think it's been the history in Alaska. I think the courts have typically said. Uh, this is an area that we see that there's a problem with the law on, and you need to go back and fix it. And how much guidance they give you in that and how much detail I think can vary. But uh, I think that's usually the case. The court tells you where you've made mistakes and then allows the board to go back and try and fix those mistakes to the satisfaction of the court. So you, you all five of you are still on the board until the final, after the litigation's over, until that final Thing, thing gets approved. The map Correct. gets approved. Exactly. Same five board members, and we'll still work together. You know, if that does happen, if it's, um, it will be litigated, I'm certain. And if it's the court gives us direction to make changes, then we'll go back and make changes. But as you pointed out, it's difficult because when you do make a change here in one district, it cascades into many other districts. So it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge to do that. And sometimes you can have something that looks dramatically different, which was the case in the... 2013 final redistricting plan that came out. Yeah, they forces the, a 2012. It was dramatically different. I think there was back then fair. There was an issue in Fairbanks and Southeast, which changed things quite, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like I said, really, really frustrating being a candidate in, oh. in, in that time because yeah. you're kind of like, uh, what's gonna what's gonna happen? But there were so many great things. One of the things that I'm most proud about in the redistricting plan that we came up with. <clears throat> is that we focused, uh, a lot of our focus was on the uh, regional ANSCA corporations. And I know one entity that was very involved in it was Doyle. Oh, yeah, they, they put together a map. <clears throat> they did, and they put a lot of resources together. And I represented, a, when I was in the Senate, a big portion of the Doyon region, but not all of the Doyon region. So, you know, since the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in 1971, when you look at the 1980 redistricting plan, 
which is the one that I served under, uh, those Doyon region, that Doyon region was scattered. Then they were scattered in 90, in 2010. And in 2010, they actually had five different house districts that took a piece of that Doyon region. And I think that the frustration for over the years for Doyon that they couldn't get the region together into one house district was uh, was very high, and that's why they put an effort forward. And I was very proud of the board and the work that we did to make it work so that for the first time ever, all of the Doyon region are in one house district. And they, they were pretty transparent about their intentions. I mean, they exactly. were they were concerned about that area, their area, and they, they said that on the record, and that was yeah. very clear what they were trying to do. Yeah, and it was not just Doyon, but they had a coalition. It yeah, was, it was, it was several Doyon, group. Atna, Sea Alaska, Fairbanks Native Association, and Tanana Chiefs. And so I think we accomplished that for all of those areas. And a lot of the regional entities, the regional corporations, are actually all together and into various house districts. So uh, I, I was very proud of that. I, 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 I guess I realized this, but I never even thought too much about it. But anybody can put, the, put, put forward a map. Exactly. So here's yeah. my, So I, next time, maybe I'll do the, the landfill map, you know, <laughs> in 10 years. <laughs> You know, for and now the tools are available. It's, it's really, you can go online with the software that we've got, very powerful, and you can put together plans and put together maps quite easily uh, with, yeah, the, with the existing software that's out there. This young guy I met, um, Robbie Hockham, I don't know if you saw some of the articles we did. We have our own map that we put together. We actually, we actually put all the incumbents and the challengers in there as pins. So we have an interactive map where you can go and check, check the district, the House district, the Senate district, the new ones, the old ones. We can see the challengers. Who is it? Yeah, if they, we, if, we try and avoid that. You, you, you guys <laughs> we don't want to see that. You guys don't get into that, right? <laughs> no, exactly. So for a minute, you know, um, before they adopted the current Senate pairing plan, there, there was there was a uh, like the first plan that came out put me in an open Senate district. <laughs> remember, <laughs> remember that preliminary one where it was the open kind of Taku Bayshore. I don't remember. That was the, fir- that was the first one, but then the next day it changed. So I was I tweeted out. I said, "Oh my God." You Landfield's get- in the open Senate district. <laughs> and then there were some jokes like, you shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> Someone said, fix that. <laughs> so so the, the litigation could take, I mean, probably will take months. But this is one of the, what do they call it, a rocket docket? These ones yeah, go to the front. Yeah, it goes to the front of the line, yeah. So that'll, that'll be, I guess, I think December 10th. So that's what, we're in the 2nd. So this is about a week. We'll see if any litigation gets filed. It's going yeah. to be interesting. And then the, obviously the session starts here in Jan- January, so... Interesting times, always. So the last thing I wanted to ask is, is like I said, the, the, the board, from what I watched, it was all very kind of copacetic. And at the end, it did get a pretty, pretty tense. And this happens in committees. And, you know, you've been in the legislature. Yeah. There were some times where it got very um, intense. And you were the, you're the chairman. How, how did you kind of, you know, what, what's that like when your you know, passions are high, man, managing that? You just try and, you know, you have to kind of have an even keel on it and uh, keep moving forward. You don't want. The, you don't want it to devolve, so you try and keep it at a high level and, and keep it moving forward. Try not to make it uh, personal. Uh, try and caution members against, um, you know, getting into personalities, stick to the issues, stick to what the motions are, uh, debate the motions, uh, uh, but try and really stick to moving forward with the business and, and keep it on a high level. So try to do that. Not always successful, but... Where do you, you know, when you think about this, you're, you're, you, five of you are impacting the state in, in, a, in a big way for 10 years. You know, how, how, when you think about that, does that weigh heavily on you or? 
Well, you do the best you can, and you follow the law. That's important. I think we were very, um, we engaged the public at a very high level. We had a lot of hearings all around the state. We listened carefully. Uh, we were respective of the public and their input, also the third parties. Uh, you know, and the third parties, you have to weigh that. They have a special interest in mind and a special purpose especially that they're may- trying to accomplish. Especially maybe the Senate minority one. <laughs> well, that's, you know, so you, you still listen to them. We took their plan around the state as well so that people had an opportunity to see that. Many people testified. They thought that was a great plan, which we respected. But we, we have to, you know, in the end, we have to really look out for what we think is best overall for the state. And we're five individuals who have our from different parts of Alaska, have different life experiences. And so we come at it a little bit differently, but in the end we come together and um, either unanimously or by three to two, we make a decision and move forward. And I think, you know, a lot of the, if I'm, if I'm correct, a lot of the Senate pairings except Anchorage were adopted unanimously, right? Yeah. Fairbanks, the rules, Southeast, everybody kind of agreed. And it was this really. This two seats. This, yeah, this really Anchorage area, specifically two seats, yeah. was was the big focus. Um, is there a chance that if this gets litigated, I've, I've said this before on the podcast and on some of my live streams, if it gets litigated, there, there could be a chance that, that there could be, the courts could say, you know, maybe start over. Sure. And that could really, because I mean, the house, like I think it's pretty pretty apparent that, that the house um, seats went away that some didn't expect. Um, and it, there could be a, you know, start from scratch unlikely but that could that could be an outcome it could be it's it's in the hands of the courts and you know we'll see what the litigation is and what the arguments are and then how the court responds to those and you know it, it starts at the superior court and then ultimately goes to the supreme court so and it could be and different it, it, supreme it, it, court members now than there were 10 years ago so and it could be it could be state or federal court it could depending where, yeah, where they want the to federal sue. it would be in the, the voting rights act so that's a bit unusual but it could happen. I, I read you. I heard. I learned you can't sue over on the voting rights stuff or the federal side. It can't be partisan. It's got to be specifically kind of the, the race, socioeconomic yeah. issues. So you can't say, well, these Republicans or these Democrats are not together. That that's not something you can sue over on the on the federal side. I'm not real that familiar, but I know it would probably be under the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. which has to do with race, if if it were litigated at that level or if the Justice Department pursued it. So last thing, how much are you involved in the Wolverines? I mean, I know your family company started the Wolverines hockey team. You got, you got, oh, you got something there. What is that? My Wolverine mask. Oh, there it is. There's your mask. Wolverines. (laughs) So I did the podcast with your daughter, Kai, um, in the summertime, and we were talking about, which I predicted that Sullivan's not, not closing for a while. I think spring. And here we are. You're a wise man. December. (laughs) I told her that and she's like, oh no, don't say, I said, look, trust me. I, I stayed the night there. I don't know if you saw that or. I heard about that, but Ooh, yeah, man, it was, it's not a great situation. So. Yeah. So they're struggling, not struggling. I mean, really it's been very successful and the community really, from what I've gathered has really embraced the team and uh, very supportive here in Anchorage of the Wolverines. It's great now with Fairbanks. I was just, uh, the, the Wolverines were just up for a series with the ice dogs. Yeah. I read, that, I read that. Yeah. And so to see that rivalry, Come back between Anchorage and Fairbanks at the junior hockey level is great. I love love to see that. I went to a game uh, a few months ago. Some friends invited me at the 
not Bin subway I, well subway it's uh, uh royal business royal business systems, systems. i mean yeah. i just call it subway still but yeah royal <laughs> business systems it's subway so much easier yeah um but but i up there was there was like the the kind of owner's bar? area bar th- so i just kind of snuck up there and i said hey, ryan he's like what the hell are you doing here i said just having a beer having a white claw and he's like well fuck it i have a cookie too <laughs> but it was really kind of nice a lot of people were there it was you know, I, I remember going to the Aces games, and oh, that yeah. was always oh, a fun, goodness. fun yeah. thing. That just place rocked. The Sullivan rocked. It was great. Bob Lester. You know, Bob the, Lester's so good. They're so, it's so great to have him uh, doing the announcing for the Wolverines now, too. He's just the best. He's, he's, he's a character. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, well, thanks for coming on the podcast, John. We talked about a lot. I've, always, I've wanted to do this you know, for a long time. The history is really interesting, and the legislature, and how you got in there. And I mean, you saw a lot of things over the, over the 80s. I mean, it must have been a kind of wild time. It was great. It was a great time. It's just great friendships, too, that we developed. In those days, we lived in Juneau, and so we socialized a lot together as legislators, got to know each other, you know, outside of session, which was, I think, really important. And even though we had philosophical differences, we we didn't attack each other personally, and uh, we kept it to a high level and, and uh, just established great friendships that have lasted, you know, a lifetime. I meant to ask you, I mean, nowadays, a lot of folks come back every weekend. Yeah, we didn't and, do that. And, and families don't go down there. Some some do a little bit, but, I mean, didn't your kids go to school in Juneau, yeah. right? Yeah, we we enrolled them in school there. They went to school. So it was, uh, and I coached soccer, indoor soccer, during the wintertime. And, you know, we were integrated in the community, really, during session. And it was good. Last thing I want to ask you, I totally forgot about this. 2006, when you ran for governor. Oh, yeah. How well did you know Sarah Palin then? And, and do you guys keep in touch or... We don't keep in touch. Uh, I got to know her very well because we went to dozens and dozens of forums. It was you and, and Hal debates. Crow and her, right? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. that must have been. It was, it was great fun. I enjoyed it. It was so, it was such a learning experience, really, to get to know the whole state on, a, you know, to travel around the state, to get to know the economics and the people and the issues in each of the communities, to get to know Sarah and to get to know Andrew um, uh, and all the people involved and uh, and of course Frank Murkowski too. He was he was a part of that in the primary. And he, so he, he didn't do that was he didn't do too well in the primary there, did he? No, he didn't. I think he, he got third out of three, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah. So what what but, made you back then decide to run for governor? Well, when I left the legislature in 1990, I wasn't ready to give up politics. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and <clears throat> uh, you know it was a decision between my wife and I, and and we made the decision to step back from politics. But she knew that I really enjoyed it. And would like at some point to get back involved. And uh, in 2005, our youngest son was out of high school and into college uh, that fall, fall of 2005. So you know, we said that was probably a good, good as time as any, and uh, got back involved and ran for governor. I wasn't. You know, I moved here in 2004 when I was 19, and I wasn't involved in politics at all. I mean, maybe paying attention a little more than the average person, but but. Palin was really fascinating because there was the, the Vico kind of thing that was going on, and 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 I was just brand, brand new here. But she tapped into something oh back then because I remember yes, she's so being skilled in that regard. Twenty one, and not really just imagine you know somebody moving to some state they had no connection to. I loved her, yeah, I, and I just didn't know why. It was just something she tapped into something. Yes, and it was I think right place, right time. There's that book Amanda Coyne and Tony Hopfinger wrote, um, "Crude Awakening." It talks all about that period. You're, you're, you're mentioned in it. It's a good oh, book. Well, yeah. I haven't read it. But it's about that time and just kind of right place, right time. Yeah. And she was seen as kind of like the the, the um, force she, against the corrupt bas- exactly. bastards, whatever you want exactly. to call it. 
She's and, very insightful and, and very perceptive and picks up on those things and very skilled at that. Very, very skilled. Could you see that? Could you sense that on the campaign trail when you were? I don't think I really recognize. I recognized how popular she was and the, the, how she could really relate to people. But I, I don't think I quite understood it at that point. I think I've subsequently looking back at mm-hmm. it. You well, there was the Randy Redrick thing and the AOGCC. Remember the emails and all that? And she was, she, I think she turned him in. And he got in trouble. And that was, yeah, she, yeah, 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 yeah. So there I was all these that. things that were yeah. happening. And I think yeah. she got seen as almost kind of like a, in some ways, like a, like a Trump, you know, like outsider who's going to come in there and shake it up. Exactly. You know, and yeah. it was a long time ago, but it, it, I'll never forget the, the feeling of being 21 and just really excited about it. I didn't know anything about Alaska. I was just there for like maybe a year and a half, two years at that point. Well, it was interesting. She ran for lieutenant governor the the four years before. 2002, yeah, correct. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think Lauren Lehman beat her in the primary. Uh, but I had the same feeling. I remember going to a, a forum at the Chamber of Commerce in Fairbanks and watching her as one of the, the uh, candidates for lieutenant governor. And I just walked away very impressed, very impressed. Yeah, she um she came up fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, John, thank you for coming in and doing the podcast. Um, we'll we'll be seeing you around. You're uh you're still busy with the business, right? In Fairbanks, you guys are kind of slamming up there. You know, uh, no, I've been. I came back to the business. I ran the cruise ship association for 13 years. Oh, the CLIA, yeah, yeah, and then uh, and then I left that two years ago to run work for Ryan basically to run a project down in Ketchikan. So I've been commuting back and forth to Ketchikan, building a cruise ship dock. And facilities. You guys got the, the float plane thing in Juneau, right? Didn't you yeah. guys do something yep. with the? Yep. Yep. I see Ryan down there. Ryan sometimes. does that. Yeah. But it, he's got me working on this project down in Ketchikan now. So, so now that back and forth. Father's working for the son, right? Exactly. Yeah. Full circle. I'll never forget when I went on the, the Discovery, I, I went in the captain's, uh, what's it called? Booth or I don't know. The, the wheelhouse? The wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, they, they kind of gave me a little little tour up there and I said, can I, can I blow the whistle? And they said, sure. And I pulled the other one, the big one. Yeah. People were really not very happy about that. <laughs> that was loud. Yeah, typically you have to kind of prepare people near the wheelhouse. It was pretty loud. So I don't, it, was, it was a good, that was great. That was a fun, the dog, you know, they stop and they do the dog sleds. Oh, yeah, sure. had a good time doing that. So folks are in Fairbanks. They want to get up to in the summertime, go on oh, the Rainbow it's a Discovery. Great tour. And, yeah, people really enjoy that. And it's, you guys have that, that 40 below freezer deal I went in. That's fun too, that was, isn't it? Whose idea was that? Oh, I don't, I don't know where that came from, but it's That's a great, it is. It's a great idea for Not, people to experience forty below. It's unique. It's a, it's a novelty. It's very unique. You've been yeah. up in Fairbanks for recently. Yeah, just just up there. That's where home is. It's, so. it's. I mean, it's been cold for Anchorage. I guess Fairbanks usually gets, but I've been looking at the temperatures there, and it's been twenty five like really cold yeah. for. I mean, Anchorage too for the last several weeks. But that when we were kids growing up there, it was 40, 50, 60 below. We don't get those kind of temperatures anymore. Well, I, I, I'm I'm happy with about. 10 above. Yes. Yeah. Great for me. Well, John okay. Binkley, thanks for coming in. I appreciate doing the podcast and uh, we'll be, we'll be seeing you around. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Thanks folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.